How is everyone doing? Welcome back to another episode of The Banker Next Door. I am your host, Dr. Joe Berquist. Today, we're going to be continuing our series on the Lords of Easy Money. Uh, today, we're going to be going over Chapter 2. And what I have decided to do is basically just to methodically move through this book chapter by chapter. I think there's about 16 total chapters in the book. So every week, I'm just going to run through a chapter. Some of these episodes will be shorter than others, uh, as some chapters obviously a lot shorter than other chapters. But uh, but I, I want to do this just to kind of methodically move through the book, kind of hit on the very important parts and kind of keep things moving along here. And I hope everyone will enjoy as we kind of go through this series. So I uh, want to bring in our trusty little PowerPoint uh, PowerPoint presentation here just to kind of guide us through this. So just a real quick recap, if you didn't see the first two episodes that I had posted last week. So basically, we just did chapter one and the, the three, I think the three key things to note in on chapter one were that Thomas Honig, uh, became basically a very big dissenter at the Fed back in the year uh, 2010. Uh, in the years during the financial crisis, 2008, 09, 010, the, basically the Fed had printed more money in two years than they had in their first 95 years of existence, uh, which is just an astronomical amount of money creation that was pumped into the economy. Um, and then basically Ben Bernanke at the end, he wanted to move full throttle on ZERP which is his uh, zero interest rate policy and quantitative easing. He wanted to just, you know, turn the spigot on and just keep the money printing machine rolling, rolling, rolling. Um, and he wanted to do it for an unspecified period of time. And, and that was basically, and uh, Thomas Honig basically, uh, you know, dissented against this, didn't want to move forward with it. It kind of made his opinion known and it kind of took us to no, the November uh, 2010 meeting of the FOMC, and that's kind of where we left off. So now we get into chapter two, and chapter two really gets into more of the background on Thomas, and, and we start to learn a lot more about his personal history, and then we get into a little bit later in the chapter, we're going to get into some history on the Fed. Uh, so with that being said, let's kind of kick it off, and we'll kind of move through Thomas's background here a little quicker so that we could get to kind of the meat of the topic here. So uh, so as we can see here, basically Thomas Honig, he grew up in Fort Madison, Iowa. His father had basically a plumbing supply business, which the whole entire family worked in. And uh, Thomas basically started off working in there at the age of nine. And at a very young age, he was kind of uh, managing, taking inventory, uh, accounting for uh, a lot of the, the product that was moving in and out. And I think really kind of kicked off his love affair with with numbers and with math early on at an early age. Um, and then we could see here, so uh, Thomas, is, his parents basically encouraged him to really go to college as they did all of their kids. Um, th again, they, his, his parents were that World War II generation. Uh, they had basically, you know, come up, came up in kind of a harder lifestyle, uh, very working class family, doing a lot of working class jobs, uh, you know, growing up in a very, uh, you know, kind of heavy manufacturing and farming sector of the United States, where, you know, a lot of people were doing a lot of jobs with manual labor. So you can kind of understand how they, they, you know, like so many parents of that generation, they pushed their kids to college. So, uh, so Thomas ended up attending a small Catholic college in uh, Atchkin, Atchkinson, Kansas, 
Um, and at that college basically is where he discovered his love for economics, his love for finance, and, and basically went to school, earned a degree there. Um, and after he graduated in 1968, unfortunately, he received a draft notice for, for Vietnam, which was raging uh, very heavily. You know, right around 1968 was was right when they had the Tet Offensive in Vietnam and, and Vietnam was kind of at its, uh, you know, uh, at, kind of at its peak at that point. Uh, even though the buildup would continue for for a few more years there. So after a lot of deliberation, basically, Tom decided that he was just going to enlist instead of waiting to get you know drafted in, even though he'd received his draft card. He decided to enlist. He enlisted in the Army. Uh, he goes right in. Uh, after he gets in, basically, instead of being an infantry infantryman, he basically gets uh, recruited as an artillery man. And then he becomes basically an expert in firing uh, heavy artillery. And he basically serves in this role in Vietnam for seven months. And after he performs that shot, Tom, uh, basically, uh, Tom gets transferred into a job of working in a, in a, uh, a bunker. And he's basically directing the fire of artillery cannons. And this is a, a basically a highly stressful job. But once again, it's a job that really requires a ton of analysis and mathematics, uh, something that Tom was was highly suited for. And it this is a job that required a tremendous amount of precision because he was firing these very large cannons from a very far distance. And if he messed up, if they made even one mistake or one miscalculation, he could possibly kill uh, other U.S. troops. So he so it was a very high pressure, uh, you know, you know, very time sensitive. They had to move very quickly, had to get things done very fast. And uh, so, you know, so he learned to you know, basically work under pressure, basically do analysis, do numbers, calculate, keep things rolling. So after seven months of doing this, he then gets transferred into another camp where now he's actually analyzing the artillery accidents that have occurred uh, during these the, the, the year or so, a couple years or so that he had been there in, in Vietnam, which is kind of interesting. So he kind of moved up through artillery men to firing, you know, uh, artillery cannons and then finally uh, analyzing the artillery accidents that, that unfolded. So. Uh, so now we fast forward, you know, a couple couple months after that. So it's now 1970. Tom has basically done his two years of service, and now he returns back to Fort Madison. And like many soldiers of that time, he basically struggles with his experiences of, you know, what happened to him in Vietnam and, and kind of looking at what's currently happening in the United States. Obviously, at that point in 1970, uh, you know, you had a lot of uh, political upheaval. You had the uh, Pentagon Papers, which had recently come out that the U.S. government had basically been lying about the war in Vietnam and how things were going. And, uh, you know, the war was not going well, was not going in the U.S.'s favor by this point. So um, so he had kind of all that to contend with. So, you know, he kind of made a decision at that point that he had to just, you know, move forward with his life. He had to, he had to just move on and uh and had to just kind of seek out his future so he 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 got back with uh his uh um kind of his college sweetheart i guess you could say he marries his wife whose name was cynthia uh he enrolls at iowa state university to basically earn his master's and his phd and with that i just wanted to read a couple of things about kind of the kind of describing how the field of economics had changed from 1970s to 1990s, and then also talk a little bit about Tom's, uh, his thesis and his dissertation, because it does become uh, important. So 
By the 1990s, the field of economics would transform into something that seemed like the science of how to get rich. Modern economists developed theories that justified the actions of large corporations and banks, paving the way for international trade deals, new financial trading in exotic derivatives, and a relentless push toward maximizing profit for people who own stock. But in the early 1970s, Honig applied himself to a different kind of economics. This economic studied how America's democratic government could coexist with free markets. Honig studied the ways that capitalism, democracy, and regulation might be mutually supportive. So his master's thesis was an in-depth study of income tax in the state of Iowa. He began his paper by pointing out that the obligations of state governments had expanded dramatically since World War II. States had once been confined to passing enforcement laws, but now they were committed to a growing range of public services like operating highways and providing welfare benefits. And this expansion of the regulatory state was already stoking anger in American politics. And it basically, after 105 pages of charts and tables and citations, his ultimate conclusion was unsatisfying in its humility. Uh, setting budgets will always be maddeningly unpredictable and uncertain. The best that can be done is to look at the available data and make the best judgment possible, he wrote. So now for his PhD dissertation, Honig turned his attention to the banking system. By the late 1960s, banks were merging with one another at a very fast pace. If this continued, he worried it might create a banking system that was dominated by very large institutions. I could almost see the beginning of the end of the community bank, he later recalled. Honig studied this issue in a narrow way, similar to how he studied state tax issues. He wrote a deeply technical report that aimed to help federal regulators decide if they should approve or reject a given bank merger. He did this by examining the market for consumer loans. So he basically compiled data from all 50 states and parsed it. He found evidence that the market for consumer loans was segmented, meaning that banks didn't have to compete directly with, with other institutions like credit unions for loan business. This meant the regulators should only consider the impact that a bank merger had on concentrations of ownership among banks, rather than considering what impact it might have on the concentration of all lending in a given area. This wasn't the kind of finding that generated big headlines, but it could help a lot of people and keep banking competitive. Decades later, these papers would illuminate how Honig thought about banking and finance, which they very much did. Um, he didn't study how to boost profit margins or make a market more efficient. Instead, he studied the structure of the banking institutions and thought about how it impacted society reflecting a viewpoint that was widespread in the era when Honig uh, grew up. It held that bankers were motivated to make money, but that it was up to the government to make sure that the banks served a broader purpose, feeding economic growth and providing a healthy circulatory system for money. The structure of banks mattered a lot in this view. So, um, so that's, I think that's very important into to understanding the man and understanding the way that he perceived a lot of the, the things that went on in the banking world, the things that went on at the Federal Reserve and, and just how he looked at a lot of stuff. And I think that be, and then you also see how the, the study or the, um, the science, if you will, of economics changed over that 20 year period of time. He talked about how it went from a period where, you know, you were studying how 
capitalism and free markets and democracy can all work together and how uh, a bank was looking to make profit, but it was the federal government's job to make sure that that, you know, that banks were operating in a proper way and con conducting themselves in a proper way throughout society, that, that the, you know, everything was getting spread around the way that it, it should be and the economy was functioning the way it should be. Uh, but that basically how it, the attitude had changed over time where now the study of economics was more focused on, you know, uh, maximizing the profit for shareholders, maximizing the profit for stockholders, uh, creating fancy derivatives and other exotic financial products and things of this nature. So, um, so that, again, that, that will play in, I think is, as we go through, continue through the book and try to understand a little bit more about, you know, Thomas. So, so, Tom graduated and basically in 1973, uh, he basically he applied and he received his first job as a research economist in the Department of Banking Supervision within the Kansas City Federal Reserve Bank. So now that he's in the, he's in the Federal Reserve Bank and basically his job is as a, you know, a, a research economist and he's, he's overseeing a certain uh, geographic area. He's overseeing the Kansas City Feds District, which was Colorado, Kansas, Nebraska, Oklahoma, Wyoming, and portions of Missouri and New Mexico. And basically he's, so he's, um, you know, he's conducting reviews and audits of all the banks in that geographic territory. Um, so he's a bank supervisor. He's reviewing all these banks. He's watching their performance and what they're doing. And that's what he basically ends up doing for 20 years until he becomes the uh, president of the Kansas City Fed in 1991. So, but now let's um, let's talk about a little bit about the history of central banking in the, in the U.S. So there is nothing in the U.S. Constitution that demands or even specifically authorizes the creation of a central bank. But it turned out to be impossible for a modern nation to survive without a central bank. America tried to get by for about a century without a, an established establishing a government run bank that controlled the currency between 1776 and 1912. The United States twice, twice created and then destroyed a central bank. The country resisted having a central bank because it concentrates so much power into so few hands, also foreign hands. Uh, this concentrated power would undermine the entire American project, which was ideally to put control of the government into the hands of average citizens. When Andrew Jackson revoked the charter of the second U.S. National Bank in 1836, he called it dangerous to the liberties of the people. It's not hard to understand why. Imagine if one bank had, dom had dominion over the entire financial system and the leaders of that bank could decide who got loans and who didn't. Those bank leaders would be the most powerful people in the country. Such a scenario is, by any measure, anti-American. The early American banking system was decentralized, and it was a disaster. The reason things didn't work without a central bank is that every modern nation needs a reliable form of currency. Currency is the medium of exchange that holds value and transfers value from one person to another. Without currency, people would still be trading corn for tobacco and trying to figure out the exchange rate. Without a central bank to issue a national currency, creating money becomes a cottage industry. And in the mid-1800s, the United States had thousands of different currencies floating around. One count put it at 8,370 currencies. This was called the free banking era, and it was lunacy. 
Any bank could issue money and the currency was backed by the bank itself. So if the bank went bust, the money went bust with it. Every person had to make a judgment about the health of a given bank to figure out if they wanted to use its currency. A person could get money from a bank in Illinois and then travel to Oregon only to argue with a clerk at a hotel whether the Illinois currency was any good. Congress passed a law after the Civil War that chartered a series of national banks around the country, which issued a more uniform currency. But even if the currency problem got ironed out, there was a second reason that a central bank was necessary. The American banking system was still hyper-fragile and subject to regular panics and failures. Major bank panics broke out one after the next in 1893, 1895, and 1907. Bank runs were inevitable in panics because there wasn't an all-powerful central bank that could print money and act as a lender of last resort, providing loans when every bank needed money at the same time. Without a lender of last resort, the banks were left to bail out one another using whatever reserves they happened to have on hand or uh, to fail. The Fed was given power to print money and loan it out freely to otherwise sound banks during a panic which was the effect of stopping panics in the first place because borrowers knew the Fed was there. The Fed dispersed its emergency loans through a program called the discount window. Finally, on top of the bank panics, there was a third problem. There was no central bank to manage the overall supply of money itself. Demand for currency went up or down in unpredictable ways, but the money supply couldn't change along with it. Every autumn, for example, farmers withdrew from their local banks to hire workers to harvest their fields. This drew down the limited cash reserves at banks in the Midwest, which made them scared that they might not have enough cash on hand to meet their obligations. So when those rural banks ran low on cash, they turned to the bigger regional banks in cities like Chicago to get cash. Those regional banks then turned to the New York banks and the New York banks turned to the big banks in Europe. This could turn into a panic and be truly ruinous for everyone. The bank panic of 1873 led to a depression that lasted about six years. The popular effort to form a central bank gathered strength during the early 1900s, but the movement didn't become a realistic political possibility until the Wall Street bankers decided to get behind it. To the everlasting joy of every conspiracy theorist in America, a group of ultra-powerful bankers got together and held a secret meeting in 1910 in which they created a blueprint for an American central bank. The bankers met at a luxurious resort called Jekyll Island in, off the coast of, uh, down in Georgia, actually, making it easy for future filmmakers and authors to talk about the Fed as the creature from Jekyll Island, as if it were a secret plot that the bankers foistered on America. Uh, actually, yes, it was a secret pl plot that they fostered on America, and we'll actually, we'll, I'm actually, we'll do a review of the creature from Jekyll Island, and we'll go through um, all that. Um, but yes, this 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 fantasy that has had paraded around for a long time that it wasn't some kind of secret plot to create a central bank. Yeah, yes, it was, and yes, they did. Um, but this isn't the case, as William Greeter made clear in his seminal history of the Fed, Secrets of the Temple. I do have Secrets of the Temple, too, and we'll look at that. The bankers did push their plan in the U.S. Senate, but they were riding a wave of public sentiment that had been building for decades. The central bank was inevitable by that point in the United States, but the bankers at Jekyll Island did secure an important victory at their secret meeting. They made sure that the U.S. central bank would not usurp the power of the private banking system on Wall Street. The bankers 
at Jekyll Island exterminated such wild notions. They put Wall Street at the center of the proposed Federal Reserve System. When the Fed increased or decreased the money supply, it would do so through the commercial banking system, letting the banks decide how the money would be distributed into the economy. The Jekyll Island plan was debated and modified in Congress and passed in 1913, creating the first enduring central bank in U.S. history. But the deeper, very American tension over having a central bank never went away. America needed a central bank, but it didn't want one that was too powerful. This tension was encoded into the Federal Reserve's DNA. The Federal Reserve was both a government agency and a private bank. It was controlled in Washington, D.C., but also decentralized. It was given total control over the money supply, but didn't replace the private banking system. It was insulated from voters, but broadly accountable to politicians. Hmm. Maybe. I think that's a little debatable. The tension was also encoded into the Fed's structure. It's why the Fed is a network of regional banks governed from an office in Washington, D.C. The 12 regional banks might be one of Congress's strangest creations, mixing public government with private enterprise. Each regional bank is owned by a group of private banks in the district. The private banks own stock in the regional Fed, though they can't sell it. The private banks in each region are given seats on the regional Fed's board of directors, and the board selects the bank's president. This was designed to create a decentralized system with powerful regional banks that are accountable to both the community banks in the region and to the Fed's governing board in Washington. While the Fed was supposed to look like America, a federated nation of 12 regional banks, its governance became more centralized in Washington each time the Fed's charter was updated by Congress, which it has been many times. The power at the Fed now rests largely with the bank's board of governors, of whom there are seven nominated by the president and approved by Congress. The tension between the governors and the regional bank presidents is seen most acutely inside the Federal Open Markets Committee because the governors have a majority of seats on the FOMC. They set the agenda and the board's power only increases in times of emergency when the Fed becomes the lender of last resort. The governors can take action without the approval of the full FOMC. One of the Fed's important roles is to regulate the banking industry to help ensure that bank panics and bank failures don't destabilize the wider economy. <laughs> I, I laugh because they've they've done such a miraculous job of that over the last hundred years. Honig would spend nearly two decades in the supervisory department, meaning he was a bank regulator. Okay. Um. So so again, and we we talked about you know now now we kind of go, went over that that very kind of brief overview of the, the history of the central banks in the U.S. So there was there was originally two central banks. The first one was killed by um, James Madison in 1811. Uh, if you actually go back to one of the very first, that building is actually being restored now. If you go back to one of the very first uh, episodes that I did, uh, I actually did an interview with the uh, gentleman who's actually working on the restoration of that building right now in downtown Philadelphia, which is kind of kind of interesting. And then the second bank of the U.S. was actually got uh, the charter got taken away by Andrew Jackson, um, who, who, you know, and again, he, he, you know, I always find it interesting. They talk about how the U.S. was a mess for all those years in the 1800 without the central bank there to guide them. Uh, but actually, we things were very prosperous and, and in a lot of ways they worked very well. We had the gold standard, you know, um, things, things. I don't believe that things were ever quite as bad as what they make them out to be. Yeah, sure. There was a lot of issues as were noted. Um, 
but I think this idea that that we simply cannot lie, we cannot survive or cannot live without a central bank is 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 way way overblown. Um, so anyway, but let's get back to. So we talked about the history here of the central bank. So now let's talk a little bit. We're going to wrap up here with kind of uh, Honig's experience as a supervisor, and then we're going to talk uh, very briefly about the Fed in the 1970s. So. Uh, so basically, Honig, Honig's job involved a lot of arguments with local bankers. Uh, the substance of the disputes usually centered on a topic of paramount importance, the value of assets. Uh, the bankers often thought that their assets were worth more than the bank examiners thought they were worth. The consequences of such disagreements were enormous. Tom and his team were trying to make sure that the banks weren't making dangerous loans or getting so overextended that they might fail. The assets in question were held as collateral at the banks. If a bank had more collateral, it would make more loans. If the Fed ruled that its collateral was worth less than the bank said, then the bank needed to raise money to cover the value of its loans. In dire cases, the bank could be taken into receivership and essentially dissolved. If the arguments were heated, there was no doubt who held the power in the relationship. Fed examiners had access to the bank's records and employees. They could see what they were lending and to whom. So, just so everybody understands, that hasn't changed. That that relationship, that dynamic has not changed at all. It is still very much that way today. And you know, this is how things, this is how things work and how things roll. So okay, now let's wrap up here by talking about uh very briefly about the 1970s. So as the 1970s progressed, such arguments became more heated and eventually turned desperate. The reasons for this can be traced back to the Federal Reserve Bank itself. While Tom's team of examiners were trying to keep the banking system safe, they were being undermined by a different, far more powerful arm of the Fed, the FOMC. The policy board in Washington was doing things that fundamentally changed the behavior of the very banks that the Fed was supposed to be keeping healthy. During the 1970s, the Federal Reserve encouraged the banks to extend riskier and riskier loans. The FOMC was keeping interest rates extraordinarily low. Huh, where have we heard that before? In part because there had been two recessions between 1970 and 1975. The Fed wanted to create jobs, encourage investment, and boost overall economic growth. So it kept rates low, even as the ill effects of creating so much money became more apparent each year. Wow, this is, I feel like I've heard this somewhere before. The most obvious effects of this policy showed up in rising prices for consumer goods, goods like food, fuel, and electronics. In 1973, the rate of consumer price inflation was 3.6%, meaning that the cost of goods most people bought rose 3.6% from one year to the next. By 1979, inflation had surged to 10.7% per year. The change was obvious to everyone. It showed up in prices at the grocery store and the gas station. It showed up in the payroll department of companies that needed to give big pay raises every year if employees were to keep up with the cost of living. Wow, I feel like I'm living this right now. But the Fed wasn't just inflating consumer prices. It was inflating asset prices as well. This was the form of inflation that was alarming to bank examiners like Tom. The value of farmland, a key asset for banks within the Kansas City Fed District, was rising steeply. So was the value of commercial real estate and the value of oil wells and drilling rigs. These assets were the collateral on banks' balance sheet, and their rising value encouraged more aggressive lending. Banks throughout the Midwest extended big loans to farms based on the theory that the value of farmland would keep rising and support the value of the loan. The same thing happened in the oil business and real estate. 
Um, Tom heard about short-term construction loans that were extended based on the theory that property values would rise so quickly that the loan could be refinanced as soon as the building was finished. This was pushing the banks to make riskier loans. High inflation and relatively low rates discouraged banks and investors from saving money because savings earned only small interest payments compared to the value it lost from inflation. The banks had to find something to do with their money that earned a good return. They were pushed out further on the yield curve. Tom and his team watched this happen, but there was very little they could do about it. As asset prices rose, the banks could credibly argue that the loans were safe and the banks were stable. The examiners at the Fed could argue otherwise, but the bankers had the numbers on their side. So Tom got to see what happens when a long period of inflation comes to a sudden, unexpected stop. You have this enormous collapse, Tom said, failure upon failure, loss upon loss, crisis upon crisis. And that brings us to the end of chapter two. And that, as they say, is a very, very powerful ending there at the very end. Because if anybody saw my episode on inflation, I talked about how literally, if you go back and look at the 1970s, we are living through the exact same setup right now. And we could if the Fed is not very careful about what they do, if they decrease rates too much, too fast, they could be setting us up for a massive another upside in inflation. Uh, we could get another massive inflationary spike here. And especially if the, the government does not get the spending under control. Um, so the lesson here that we take from chapter two is that Tom, he lived through this. He lived through this experience of the 1970s. He saw how the Fed uh, the, the, the basically the people in D.C. caused problems, too many problems by keeping interest rates low too long, by forcing banks out on the yield curve, by by forcing people not to save money because they couldn't make any money on their savings. Um, all of these same things that we have seen, this, all these same exact mistakes that we have we're seeing the Fed repeat over the last few years and we're seeing them do it right now. So um so that said, uh, you know, I hope everybody enjoyed this second episode here. Please make sure to give a big thumbs up, uh, you know, definitely liking, subscribing, sharing, uh, talking about the uh, the episodes in the podcast definitely helps a lot. And um, I'm just going to click out of this for a second. So I hope everybody will check out some of the other episodes I, I posted this weekend. And I hope everyone will continue on this journey with me as we continue to go through the chapters here of the Lords of Easy Money. And I think at the very end, uh, you, I think you guys are going to have a, a, a much deeper appreciation of what's happening right now. You're going to see how relevant this is as we move through this and, uh, and, and, and how powerful the information in here is. So, but anyway, I hope everyone has a great day and I will see everybody again real soon.